0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on at Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome to the podcast or to the Radio on Demand playback service if you are catching up with us that way. My name is Thomas Cordwell, and in a moment I'll be handing over to my co-hosts Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Cerise Howard, and Josh Nelson who are going to present a special on Dario Argento's Three Mothers Trilogy of Italian Supernatural Horror Films, which began in 1977 with the release of Suspiria. But now, over to Alexandra Helen Nicholas, whose new book on Suspiria is the latest in the Devil's Advocate series of books on classic films uh, by Auteur Publishing.
1: Alrighty, let's do this, guys. Italian director Dario Argento's Three Mothers trilogy is a horror film trilogy, and it consists, as you said, Thomas, of 1977 Suspiria, made in 1976, released in February in Italy in 1977, Inferno from 1980, and the last film in the trilogy is The Mother of Tears from 2007. Inspired by the essay Levana and Our Ladies of Sorrow, from, uh, written by mad laudanum guzzling fool Thomas de Quincey from his 1845 book Suspiria de Profundis, which translates, I believe, to size from the depth. The mythology of Argento's franchise is spelled out pretty clearly in Inferno in particular. Now, this movie begins with a voiceover by the alchemist and architect E. Varelli, who tells us that he built three houses, one in Freiburg in Germany, one in New York and one in Rome, for the three mothers who seek to rule the world from these locations with, quote, sorrow, tears and darkness. In practice, this basically boils down to just kind of destroying the joint, causing (laughs) havoc, being witchy fools, just (laughs) causing trouble. Now, each film follows one of the three mothers. uh, Marta Suspiriorum, Our Lady of Sighs in Suspiria. Marta Tenebrarum, Our Lady of Darkness from Inferno. And Marta, uh, Marta Lacrimarum, The Mother of Tears. So the series spans thirty years, and as you can imagine, there are so, there's some room here for some pretty striking changes. I think it's fair to say, yeah. As the Three Mothers trilogy unfolded, we see different things happening to both the story, and I would argue, and I'm sure you guys will argue it strongly, Argento's filmmaking capacities. Um, before we start with the spirit, though, I thought that we would maybe just touch base first with how each of us has discovered these films what are i i wrote a book on suspiria so that's me how about you guys have you seen these films before what's your relationship with them
2: yeah i've seen uh, well i hadn't seen mother of tears until yesterday because I'd, I'd had the fear about that film for a very long time because i've uh, i'm a long time argento admirer and fan and i'd um Followed his career devoutly up until Sleepless and uh, the card player was the one after that, I think immediately after that, which just, I sensed the beginning of the end there, that was pretty dire, no, perhaps there was one good passage in there somewhere, but really it was um, shit house. And uh, <laughs> Mother of Tears gave no cause for optimism at all and I just put it off and off, but going back, Suspiria and Inferno I first encountered sometime in the 90s. A bunch of friends of mine became Argento fanatics. It was, um, it was all VHS era. We are back at the time when the best we could do was get hold of copies of Deep Red, where the, the the most extraordinary thing about that film is that it discloses who'd done it early on in the film. But we didn't know that because our VHS pan and scan copy didn't show us that part of the frame. <laughs> so the whole world of uh, appreciation of these films uh, was compromised. It's only in recent times that I've really been able to see them on the big screen again. Uh, at retrospective from time to time but also get good home theatrical viewings and and i have returned to them every few years especially the the animal trilogy his first three gialli and um how good a word red is gialli is very good uh deep red uh phenomena uh opera and my favorite of all tenebrae um uh yeah
3: i love those those films to bits
1: how about you josh
3: I saw probably at least 15 or 16 years ago, how time flies, that I first saw Suspiria, and I thought it was wonderful, particularly being a long-time fan of John Carpenter and the similarities, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, the similarities between the two directors are pretty unmistakable. I think clearly their work has informed each other. And i re-watching a recent documentary called Dario Argento, Eyes of Horror. I think it was released in 2000. It features a number of interviews with Carpenter talking about Argento's work and that they're friends and that they like to hang out and i would love to be a fly on the wall at those gatherings. And I hadn't actually watched Suspiria again since then um, until this weekend where I binge-watched Suspiria, Inferno and Mother of Tears. Through a kind of cold and flu a haze, which is a really interesting way to watch them back to back., uh, so it was the first time to see the second two parts of the of the trilogy, and i'd I'd sort of dosed up again on Argento at the Miff retrospective a couple of years ago, or the giallo retrospective, and I think Tenebrae was there, deep red, mm-hmm. I think was another one that played there. It was probably at three or four. Argento films as part of that retrospective. So yeah, look, I've definitely been a fan of his work, but it was it's interesting watching these in a chronology for a number of reasons, the least of which is the I guess the shifting quality potentially of Argento's work, but also I think the thing that really stuck out this time around was just how much each of these three films, even the t- the first two which are only 3 years apart, feel like they reproduce key transitional moments from the horror genre over the last well, 40 years now.
1: Definitely. What about you, Thomas? What's your relationship with...
0: I came to horror as a rule fairly late, in fact, and I don't know where I even first heard about Suspiria or its reputation, but I had in my mind at one point that this is one of those important films I needed to see, and I held out until I was actually on my, my honeymoon 10 years ago, almost to today. Uh, How yeah. romantic. Yeah. <laughs> this is the greatest love story I've ever heard. Um, and I was determined to hunt. I wanted to get the Italian DVD. And I actually went out and got a few sort of a, a, Italian films like that in Italy on DVD. I've got no idea if they're good quality or not. I'm pretty sure the, the copy of El Topo I got was rubbish. And, you know, I got Allegro and Troppo as well, which is an old favourite. But yeah, I picked up Suspirio. And it took me quite a while to finally actually get down. To, to, to view it and it was an astonishing experience uh, I mean I, and I'm, no doubt it's the only one of the films tonight that I've seen that we'll be talking about so I won't be contributing too much but that just that production design and, and the, the, the boldness and, and as you talk about in your book Alex the privileging of the emotional sensory experience of this film over narrative because the story isn't the strongest some of the acting you could argue is a little hammy but it's so incredibly irrelevant to the, the lush beauty and audacity of this film. I mean, that that first murder is so shocking. I remember, I, I almost never do this, but I pressed rewind. I had to watch that murder a few times because I couldn't believe how you close the camera gets. That
1: is macabre. Yeah, and this is,
0: <laughs> this is before I knew you as well. So I, I reached that phase by myself. Uh, but since yeah, look, I've always been interested in in uh, Argento, probably not to the extent of anybody here. I know Cerise made me stay up way too late one night and made me watch what was it, Deep Red? Did I? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, think I it
1: was <laughs> Cerise friendship initiation. It yeah. was. That
0: was. We were. T- we were. We were working on a, a Max Headroom special on Guy Madden. Yeah, and it got to something like three o'clock oh, right. in the evening, yes, is, and yes. you said that you must that's watch right. Deep Red. And like, yes. Okay, and yeah. it was pr- pretty glorious. I, tried, and and after I d- drugged you with a curry, I recall. <laughs> a, a very heavy. Lulling, yeah, I'll uh, put you to sleep completely uh, in your power, and you yeah. didn't abuse that too much, carbs, which I do appreciate. Cards yeah. are the key to a <laughs> cinephile's um, will, but uh, yeah, and, but, and I love this film. And I visited Dario Argento's shop the last time I went to Rome, which is mm. rather kind of gorgeous and, and and fun, and I think that's why I picked up the soundtrack and lots of little fun things like that. So, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm not quite the fan that you all are, but I have a lot of fondness for this for Suspiria in particular, and I've seen it with a live score as well. I was just well. going to say,
1: I believe that you now that's, yeah. a, that's a really important um, event that was in Melbourne, the Acme screening uh, with the live Goblin soundtrack in 2012, in November 2012, was actually the first time that Goblin had ever done that. They've basically been on the road kind of ever since, pretty much. Um, but it started in Melbourne. That's our little Melbourne Suspiria claim to fame.
0: Three Triple ah! You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Gento. Gento. <laughs> <laughs> Three Triple R, Gento, very nice. That's
1: very good. That yeah. appeals to me. Let's start off, we've touched on Suspiria, but let's let's start off with a little bit of a uh, quick history lesson on the background of Suspiria that leads into the rest of the Three Mothers trilogy. So Argento grew up around images. His mother uh, was a Brazilian fashion photographer and his father was a bureaucrat in the Italian film industry. One of Argento's earliest memories is, of course, quite famously him sitting on Sofia Loren's knee, which is pretty awesome as far as early memories go.
3: Pretty formative.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> The young Argento began his career as a film critic and then turned to screenwriting. He quite famously co-wrote Sergio Leone's classic Spaghetti Western Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968 with another famous Italian director, Bernardo Bertolucci. So Argento, Argento was, by the mid-'70s, a pretty massive star in Italy on the back of his debut animal trilogy that Cerise has already mentioned um, that began earlier in that decade. The films The Bird with Crystal Plumage, Cat and Nine Tails and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. We'll probably touch on this more, but the Giallo films uh, especially um, really are precursors to the American slasher films. They're kind of quite highly stylized sex-slash-horror movies built around a predominantly kind of whodunit Structure. Um, some critics, um, Michael Coven, has even gone as far to call American slasher films North American gialli. So this is um, a kind of well-established argument. Argento's 1970 film Giallo Deep Red was a blockbuster it was massive and on the back of the success of that film he could pretty much have done anything he wanted one of the first things he thought about doing was a Lovecraft adaptation which sends my mind just spiralling the idea of Argento in the mid 70s doing a Lovecraft adaptation is pretty great Um, he also toyed with doing a version of Frankenstein with Timothy Dalton why not put those words together because pop culture is just a random name generator of course
3: I would have loved to have seen that I
1: know huh (laughs) However, his partner and often quite overlooked collaborator, Daria uh, Nicolodi, who, of course, was in Deep Red, she brought the De Quincey idea to Argento's attention and the rest, as they say, is history. So Suspiria itself follows the American ballet student Susie Banyan, played by Jessica Harper, on the back of De Palma's Phantom of the Opera.
2: Paradise.
1: Phantom of the Paradise. I got it wrong. Oh, no. Um... Susie arrives at the famous Freeburg Towns Academy to find things are somewhat askew. Girls are going missing, strange things are happening. There is, however, no great mystery. Um, one of my favourite jokes in this film is the whole, ooh, I wonder what's going on at the dance academy. The opening soundtrack is just the word witch repeated over and over again. I think this is a really funny film in a lot of ways. Uh, yes, the dance school is run by a coven of witches, including classic ho- classic Hollywood actress Joan Bennett and legendary Italian actress Alida Valli. With the help of a brief appearance by Udo Kier, we find out that the school is under the control of the first of our three mothers, the evil Helena Marcos. Who wants to dive in with Suspiria? Where do we go from here?
2: Well, let's, let's begin with that cast. Uh, it, it, in a way, it's a, a quintessential Euro-pudding sort of a cast. It is the stuff of European filmmaking dreams from that whole period. And all of the uh, Italians in particular, all of the greats, whether they're working in genre filmmaking or were more at the art house end of the spectrum, let's say you, you're Fellinis, Viscontis, De Sica's and such, Antonio. they were all given to making films with very international casts, many of whom did not speak necessarily the same languages, or at least not fluently with one another and uh, oh to have been flies on those walls anytime seeing these actual line readings as the the footage is shot because people often would just be speaking different languages and it'd all be fixed up in post and um, so the, one of the, the sort of criticisms but also one of the charms um, you know, levelled at Sisperia is that a lot of the line readings are kind of if not hammy just quite camp. Uh, and some do seem to be being paid for laughs and others just sometimes accidentally generate them. Or or just a full... Just like so many of Argento's films, full of really gnomic sort of throwaway lines, not least Udo Kier's uh, famous... Um, Axiom about the nature of bad luck. Alex, I think you must have this down pat.
1: <laughs> so bad luck is caused not by broken mirrors but broken minds.
2: Yeah, Think about, about that, that, listeners.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah the, the, the significance given to lines like that and their particular peculiar delivery that is all throughout Argento's work, whether, uh, as in this case, he was very heavily assisted in the scripting by his. Partner, with whom he had a very tempestuous relationship, by all accounts. Daria and a Nicolodi. quite
1: remarkable child. Yes. Called
2: Yes. Asia. yes who, uh, unfortunately for her, would wind up in the third of these <laughs> films, uh, centre stage. But. Um, you know, in the meantime, this this film is it it, it is spectacular. Seeing Joan Bennett and Alita Valley both playing very peculiar roles in this film. Uh, Alita Valley mostly acts with her teeth in this. Uh, what a pair of choppers they are as well. And Joan, she's, she's
1: yeah. like a Rottweiler. Yeah, I mean she's it's like a, a sort of wolf. Alita Valley, I think I first came across in the Third Man. Yeah, likewise, um, me too. Yeah. And also the Paradigm Case, Hitchcock's The Paradigm Case. And Joan Bennett, I knew from um, uh, Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street the wonderful film noir with
2: Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, and these are uh, actors of considerable stature and uh, it's interesting that they got drawn into this very peculiar film. Um, I don't doubt that they had no sense of what um, technological and formal challenges awaited them as actors when really they're going to be entirely subservient uh, in their performances to all of the wizardry around them. Uh, The magic isn't just in the narrative in this film, it's in all of the camera work and especially the lighting and the gore i mean the the over stimulation uh, that uh, this film subjects its viewers to uh, is in, immense. It, it, it's still one of a kind. I, I see so many films draw on it, but I, I still see nothing that has the primal power of this. And I think for these people to have been involved in it could only have been an entirely baffling experience.
1: I spent some time speaking to a wonderful human being called Luciano Tavoli um, when I wrote this book. He is quite and, a woman. And we
3: should not say that you included the interview in, the, in your publication. Yeah,
1: it was actually going to be just a few quotes in the book, but it was such remarkable. I find that sometimes talking to cinematographers, they're very technical. They talk a lot about lenses and things <laughs> Things like that Tavoli does not speak like that he speaks as an artist um, and he never for one moment um, was anything less than perfectly clear that he was given the room to experiment because Argento trusted him to do it uh, his background is is really in more kind of re, in neorealism you know he was a real, he worked on um Antonio Antonioni's the passenger yeah, that this remarkable is the same cinematographic shot yeah uh-huh. um, and he kept saying to Argento, are you sure that you want me to do this film? And Argento was like, no, no, you're the guy to do it. You're the guy to do it. But just hearing his stories about how the film was made. So he, he refused to um, do anything in post-production. This incredible colour, these incredible lights. So to get the sharp sharp angles uh with such in such dark uh settings he used a lot of reflected light so the these sets were surrounded by mirrors for starters but then he didn't he didn't want to use gels either so he had these huge wooden frames that he'd stapled gun things like tissue paper and velvet to and would hold them like a foot away from the actor's faces he said at one point that if they look scared in this film it's not acting they were scared that they were going to catch fire (laughs) just remarkable
3: the, the the point that he raises in in one point in that interview, and I think it's a really remarkable interview because you can sense the Italian passion kind of coming through, is how he talks about coming out of film school and having made that promise that it's all about realism, it's all about natural lighting, and the sense of freedom that he conveys in that interview with you about and suddenly it was like a weight had been lifted and I could go for broke, and I think that comes across in the energy of the film, not just the visual style, but it carries across all all elements of the film. I mean that opening sequence is is absolutely remarkable. It's the thing that hasn't ever left my mind since that first viewing. And it's, it's such a remarkable opening. Even uh, John Carpenter talks about there was something so strangely discomforting about that opening sequence that he couldn't get out of his head and he couldn't quite pinpoint why or how it was done. And I think part of it is the is the lighting and the mood and, and, and the setting. But the other thing that I picked up watching it again on the weekend is the remarkable use of perspective and the shifts in perspective even from that opening moment where we're introduced to Jessica Harper's character who i have to say bears an uncanny resemblance to a young Frances O'Connor but the score and the way the score's used with the perspective so when we get her perspective we hear the goblin score and when we get the reverse shot of her walking and and th- outside these these exit doors in the airport the score disappears and suddenly it's like we're moving in and out of her sort of her spatial consciousness her you know um, at so the score's already tied to that sense of interiority which i think you talk about in a really interesting way in your book and we see these perspective shifts throughout the film even that the, the horrific murder that you, you mentioned before Thomas that you're going to watch numerous times the way it sits, the camera sits inside the apartment and suddenly we're shifted outside the perspective and and breaking through those windows and that you know you think about the remarkable shot in tenebrae the over the apartment shot i mean
1: which was also tavoli
3: yeah he's such a remarkable cinematographer in the way in which he breaks those conventions and and it gives the film such an incredible sense of energy
1: the soundtrack, I think, is something that really needs... I mean, we've been talking about Tivoli here because visually it's just such an overwhelming film, but obviously the Goblin... Score to this film is is just as key, I and mean, it is this sensory overload. It's a film very determined to to really overwhelm us with with feeling and with this kind of sensory experience. There was a there's a kind of rumor or an urban legend that the that Argento played the soundtrack on the set really really loud while it was being made. This is not a, not true. But one of the actors in the film told me no no no, there was music playing, but the the actual soundtrack that we know now hadn't been written yet. They wrote that there was some goblin music playing. But my favourite story about the soundtrack was that uh, Argento was so determined that it would be loud in cinemas that cinemas that didn't have the setup for the stereo sound he would they would move in giant giant speakers and place them in cinemas behind <laughs> the screen just to blast this poor unsuspecting audience out of their chair
0: Three, triple R.
1: you are listening to plato's cave on triple rd Gento, Did I do it right, Josh? Nice, well done. <laughs> we are talking about Suspiria and Dario Gento's Three Mothers trilogy. Let's talk a little bit more about the technical aspects of uh, Suspiria. When you've seen this film, you um, if you've not seen the film, it may be bewildering to you. Why are we talking about tech so much? But this film is very much about its craft. It's, it's a film that wears its... how it's made. It, it wears its form on its sleeve... And And bits of sort of guts and sinew also on its sleeve
2: well it's one of the most magnificently artificial films of all time and the the length's gone to to give it that it really heightened look and feel um, I think it was almost the very last of some particular film stocks some particular Technicolor stock um, and then this was furthermore subjected to a three uh, three strip tra- uh, t- dye, dye transfer process. Yep. And this is really outmoded filmmaking, but which uh, enables uh, craftsmen on top of their game to emphasize prime in this film primary colors. And and uh, this film just pulsates color throughout. It's all color coded. There's meaning behind each uh, application of color. Maybe the odd red herring amongst it as oh, well. red. Well, yeah, well, you do Ma- become, A
1: magenta herring.
2: Yeah, a magenta. <laughs> <or> a magenta. <laughs> you do become so, so attuned to the role of colour, though, because it, you, well, you could not exactly not notice it unless you had extreme colour blindness, really. It is uh, one of the most... Uh, possibly the
3: most technicolour film of all time. It is intense. It yeah.
1: is aggressively made.
3: Yes. And the artistry in this film is... Is sublime, and that's I think what really st- stuck out most for me on this rewatch was just watching a film in which the artistry is so upfront, almost with a high art aesthetic. I mean, this is a film. And a filmmaker who who is quite open about his uh, artistic influences. I mean, there's Caravaggio written all over this, and other Renaissance uh, painters. The way in which Argento borrows from opera, not just a kind of from a formal structural point of view, but in terms of the aesthetic of of, of opera and
1: the violence of opera.
3: The absolutely the mm. violence of opera,
1: the melodrama of it, and I think
3: horror nowadays particularly over the last sort of 20 or 30 years um has been seen as a degraded genre it's very much the kind of the the bastard cousin of most of the classical genres that you know we kind of grew up with and were taught you know the schatz sort of model and i think this is the perfect antidote if you if you have that perception of horror then you you haven't probably haven't watched Argento, or you haven't understood the artistry of this genre which in in hindsight is is sort of sad that I feel like we've we've moved away or horror and I'm talking generally here, has sort of moved away from what we saw in the late 60s through the the late 70s and I think this film occupies a really interesting position in terms of the genre because it, it in terms of that transitional period when horror in the in both american and and european cinema came out of the suspense traditions and we've looked at Barber recently and you know it, it sort of borrows more from that and the violence in those films is there is the exclamation point it's not the focus and you see this in suspiria you also see it in in Halloween, which was, you know, the American film, which was made only a year after Suspiria. And then what's fascinating about, I guess, this trilogy is how the role of violence and the structural focus and the, the narrative coherence seems to undergo certain changes, which is not just Argento. This is happening on a kind of a, a far broader level.
1: Every now and then, uh, a friend will come up to me and they say, look, I know that you've done this, you know, you, you're living Levita, living Suspiria. And I watched the film and I just didn't like it. I didn't... The story's just not very good. And I honestly don't know what to say. It's like, well... Unfriended. No, <laughs> well, no, no, it's it's not. But is that is that why you watch film? Like, see, I don't even think. I, I, the, I love yeah. how aggressively, you know. I mean, there's there's a narrative construction here that I think is really fascinating. But I think the film's quite funny about the story stuff. In that, oh, I wonder what the secret of the dance academy is. Oh, the you know, like I said, you know, the soundtrack is which which which. One of my favourite things is that this is a film set in a ballet school where we see barely any dancing. Yeah. I think that is hilarious i think it's a funny funny joke
2: and it's a very feminine space we shouldn't uh i would be very remiss to overlook uh just just how much this is um i can't quite say a women's film because that's a very loaded term as well but uh we have a female protagonist we have a female screen writer we have uh, a dance academy which is mostly peopled by women most of them young um Argento wanted them younger, famously, um, but uh, instead to uh, emphasise the, the vulnerability and the fairy tale dimensions of the environment, these women find themselves in. All of the doorknobs, Alex, as you observe in your book, are a bit too high. Everyone is always having to reach to try to just simply open a door, which will only open into another labyrinthine passageway full of bizarre... Oh, look, it's,
1: oh, look, it's a room full of barbed wire. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: Again. Yeah. Let me just roll around
2: and <laughs> I find the exit. Yeah, but there's... A, Any sort of just narrative sense is totally jettisoned, and the film is much, much scarier for it. Why even have the pretense of having to explain everything away? That's not how nightmares work. It's not how the logic of a bad dream works. And there's something peculiarly Italian about this as well, I feel, that uh, around that time the Italians were going to ever greater lengths to top one another in terms of the extremity of the visions they would... Present and there was something of um, some have said a north south divide there that the north wanted the more intellectual side of the filmmaking there but the south wanted the thrills and so the filmmakers uh, working in popular cinema would try to give both and Argento wanted to have his cake and eat it always too so would have the really arty dimensions to his films and then would have the uh, over the top spectacle and when he kills people he really really kills them. And then, between him and say Lucio Filci, especially, there was this rivalry and, and Filci tried to do a Suspiria, you could say with the beyond a few years later, another magnificent horror film that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever and is all the better for it's it it 's all as sensory well. there 's a yeah. beautiful
1: story that Luciana Tavoli tells where. He was so unsure about working on Suspiria that he said, look, hang on a minute, I'll do some tests and I'll bring these tests back and you tell me what you think. And he went off and did some experiments, brought them back, played them to Argento. And the way that he describes it is that Argento was so moved, he went up and physically touched the screen. And to me, that, that that's what watching this film is like. It's not about processing character development or that's why you know comments about the hammy acting and things like that it's so beyond the experience of the
3: film and yet for me me, even though you establish it in your book quite early on that one of this film's great triumphs is is its rejection of the classical Hollywood paradigm. For me, it has a completely coherent narrative structure, which we don't tend to see nowadays, and which we certainly don't see to the same degree in Inferno and and Mother of Tears. I think this is quite a simple structure. You know, it doesn't need to be complex, but it has a, an internal logic and a coherence which is completely structural and which is completely coherent in an, in a in a broader narrative sense, regardless of the window dressing. And <laughs> yeah. but but even that still makes logical sense in the coherence of a, a protagonist, a largely protagonist driven narrative.
1: Before we move on to Inferno, I think it's worth picking up Cerise on your point um, about this being, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, women, a female ensemble film, yeah. effectively. There's a couple of very small, very minor male characters but... Um, uh, Jessica Harper herself has said this was basically a female ensemble film and it doesn't really get the credit that it really deserves for that. Argento's a very difficult figure to try to lock down into is he a feminist... You would never call him a feminist filmmaker, um, as perhaps we'll discuss <laughs> in some of the films that we'll, we'll look at uh, later this evening. But I think that this... I mean, that's basically the argument of my book. Um, Suspiria, from my own personal experience, is a, is a crossover. It's a pathway drug into horror for women. I know so. I mean, I know more more women that like this film than I do men. Um, I of the
3: joys of of this film. I think yeah, even in it's a, contemporary a really strong.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the final girl at the end of the film, she leaves laughing. It's wonderful. I think it's, it's just a really joyful, strong, and it's 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 women fans include Kathy Acker, the postmodern feminist '90s icon, Banana Yoshimoto, the Japanese novelist that I interviewed, who's a huge Argento fan. Women like this film I think it's very 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 unfair that it's been that Argento has kind of been written off because of some of the more complicated things that he has said and done which might be a good lead into Inferno so in 1980 the international success to Suspiria demanded a sequel and it didn't go as well it's still one of Argento's least favorite of his own films although almost a secret handshake among Argento fans and some of its more famous fans include the British film critic Kim Newman Inferno begins in New York, dark, darts back to Rome and then back to New York as it follows the story of Marta Tenebrarum played by the amazing Veronica Leza. Probably my favourite of The Three Mothers, actually. I think she's incredible. So Argento's fairy tale model of choice here was Hansel and Gretel, and f- the following the demonic breadcrumbs are Irene Miracle, who was in Midnight Express as Rose, and Lee McCloskey from Dallas as her brother Mark, although he was originally meant to be played by a pre-videodrome James Wood, which blows my mind. Inferno is based around a book called The Three Mothers, written by uh, uh, Varelli that we spoke about earlier. It's sold to Rose by the weird cat-hating antiquarian bookseller Kazanian, played by Sasha um who's the maybe husband guy in Elaine uh, Resnay's 1961 film Last Year at Marienbad. I think M... We were trying to decide what initial he was.
2: I thought we agreed on pi r squared. (laughs) Who knows?
1: So Rose writes a letter to her brother Mark in Rome who has a brief sexy encounter with Matteo Lacrimarum in the music class. He played by Anya Peroni. And a number of things find him drawn to New York to a strange apartment building where he meets a number of weirdos and weird things happen. I think that's a fair enough. Synopsis. How did you guys go with Inferno?
2: I have always loved Inferno. It, it it also makes no sense. Not least that there's a, a house that is somehow erect yet afloat. The, the, yes, the scenes indeed. where yeah, where our
1: Talk about opening credit, opening sequences of films, huh?
2: It's so gorgeous. I mean, it is another extremely stylish film. It it doesn't quite follow the same uh, aesthetic strategy as Suspiri, but it has its own one. Uh, It it is exceedingly beautiful. Um, uh, You look to debunk in your book, Alex, that Mario Bava had more to do it than perhaps he has been given credit for in the past, Uh,
1: My understanding is that Bava was present. Mm. Uh, Lamberto Bava worked, his son worked on this film, and and Bava was, Mario Bava or Bava Sr. was certainly present, but there is a kind of rumour that Bava uh, sort of was the director of this opening sequence, and I believe that that's not that's been relatively debunked
2: yeah I could well imagine he may have had something to do with the lighting of it because that light has there's definitely him all a barber esque yeah. kind of
1: kill baby kill yeah. era yeah. vibe to it
2: but yeah this this film's totally crazy it doesn't have the goblin soundtrack instead it has one from Keith, Emerson. Keith Emerson. Yes. of Emerson uh, but, Lake. And but recently it's... departed I think oh really uh, but color means an awful lot in that film too even on the soundtrack that verdy or green is uh, heavily on uh, the score there it, it's a bonkers film um, you wouldn't want to take um to look too much into it for again any c- conventional sense of narrative uh but it, hell it's a lot of fun i i haven't revisited it for the quite a long time but it has some extraordinary set pieces and um it's exquisitely beautiful
3: yeah the set pieces is, is the interesting thing because for me my initial reaction on watching this was it didn't have the coherence and 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 the sense of containment and the and the emphasis on women that i was really kind of aware of that that the, that Suspiria does but stepping back and going and putting aside my kind of i guess my classical hollywood paradigm bias in terms of structurally the set pieces and, and the the series of of remarkably directed Sequences which are all sort of spectacle of death sequences. So it's a very different approach that he's taken. In some ways, it feels like the 80s sequel that you get of the 70s film. It feels a little bit like Halloween 2. It it feels very much like the first Friday the 13th film, which came out the same year, 1980. And you know, it's a, that, that film is a film largely structured around a series of death spectacles in which one person after another is killed off in quite you know, interesting ways or increasingly violent ways. And again, there's an escalation of violence in this film, which I think is reflective in some ways, and I don't want to reduce the film to its just kind of cultural generic sort of period, but reflects broader trends at the time.
1: I, I adore Inferno. I think it's the, it's it's intoxicating, but in a very different way. I, I find that the vignettes don't cohere in quite the same way as Suspiria, uh, as organically. No. Um, perhaps there's an effort to have more uh, exposition between them. I'm not sure. Uh, I always get lost, and I love this Hansel and Gretel Point of comparison, because I always find that I get lost in Inferno, um, which I think is not not accidental on Argento's part. But I do love that you know Argento was very keen to do. He didn't want to do Suspiria too, but I love these little throwbacks. You know, obviously he's keeping the broader mythology in place, and I think Inferno really ramps up the mythology very explicitly. Uh, but little, just little things. So Dari Nicolodi is lovely. Uh, Alita Vali is in the film as yeah. a different character. The same and taxi driver. The same taxi driver um, who I just, I love that. Fulvio Mingoza, who's actually been in quite a few Argento films, but I love that he plays a taxi driver in both of these films. As I can't remember who it was, but somebody described him as like the ferryman across the River yeah, Styx. It's great. just such a great, you know, these beautiful, beautiful scenes in taxis in both of these films. Um, my my gripe, and, my, and I don't think that this is a spoiler. There's a, a a reveal at the end of of the figure of death that is just an Aldi child's <laughs> skeleton costume. Yeah. It is this amazing, <laughs> immense film in every sense of the word. And and like I said, I think that this is my favourite Third Mother. Um, no no offence to the great Helena Marcos, um, but I, I just adore I adore the the woman that plays the third uh, the second mother. She's wonderful. But yeah, it just. Physically a little bit for me with this kind of skeleton reveal.
3: It's such a good setup, though, the the mirror breaking, and you know, again, there is that mirrors you talked about with Suspiria. But there are some re- remarkable set pieces. You mentioned the opening sequence again. These these both these films, Suspiria and Inferno, have the most remarkable tense opening sequences. The underwater cinematography is just. It's just stunning. It's and th- just a magical sequence. And it just builds and builds, and it's, it is terrifying. Even if it, you like Ceres, it doesn't quite make much sense in terms of why is there an underwater yeah. kind of cavern underneath this hotel?
2: Yeah, yeah, make no sense whatsoever. Um, Argento's has always been fascinated with architecture. Uh, whether impossible or actually real-worldly. Uh, we see that in Suspiria, in interiors and exteriors. Uh, whoever it is operating his camera, he's had wonderful cameramen throughout his career, they've always lavished a great deal of attention to the surfaces of architecture, both inside and out. We see... Um, Uh, From from memory, I have to cast my mind back, but Inferno, there's a lot of corridors that the camera really enjoys just rolling along and uh, soaking up the very uh, ominous atmosphere that um, just rolling along them produces, especially if you're not always clear on just whose point of view you might be enjoying at any given time, something that is uh, endemic to his his cinema. He's always loved playing with... um, Identification. Um, this even comes into the gender politics, which have always been problematic, but often very interestingly problematic in his films, too. And it goes back to the Gialli in that they were often concerned with did somebody see what they thought they saw? What did they even think they see? And a, a film unfolds as somebody gets in out of their depth as a mystery about not even who's done it, but who's doing it, because it's always. There are always still things being done, murder <laughs> after murder. And um, you still get that sense in these these later films too, Inferno and then all of the, the following, uh, there was a you know, glorious run in the 80s too with Tenebrae and Phenomena. Where's that camera going sometimes? Sometimes it's off just doing its own thing. It's completely uh, unmoored from the narrative at that point. There's a particular moment just to go off topic very slightly in Tenebrae where the camera just goes and looks at this pointy <laughs> object briefly and, and just so the light can catch it. You almost expect it to go... Bing! It doesn't quite, but just these moments. And Inferno's, uh, I can't quite remember the particular ones in there, but I'm sure there's got to be a couple of those moments of just pure um, non-narrative nuttiness, and they're always beautiful.
0: Three, triple, R.
1: You're listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R. Gento, it, this is good. It'll be sad not to do this again next I know. week. Um, we just listened to some uh, Keith Emerson, who has passed away very recently, eight days ago. We're looking at Dario Argento's Three Mothers trilogy tonight. We've just had a chat about Suspiria and Inferno. There was 27 years between Inferno and the final instalment, The Mother of Tears, in 2007. The plus of this film, I think, is that it has Asia Argento in it, uh, who is Dario's daughter. She's a director in her own right. She was in uh, Trauma, uh, Stenholz Syndrome, Phantom of the Opera and a few other of her father's films since. Um, Dario Argento's career had pretty much been a mixed bag since the 90s, I think, that we've touched on this. Um, in the 80s, he really did continue a, a winning streak with films like Phenomena, Series, as you said, and Tenebrae. And um, opera. Oh. Beautiful opera. Things started getting wobbly in 93 with Trauma, um, which I think is commonly pinpointed as the point where things started getting a little... We're not sure. I, I adore his 1996 film, The Stendhal Syndrome, with Azer. I think it's one of his mm-hmm. uncredited masterpieces. And I'm, I'm a fan of Sleepless with Max von yeah, from 2001. I think that's a really interesting film. Um, Mother and T- Mother of Tears in 2007 follows the sexy adventures of Marta Lacrimarum in Rome, where she and her naked followers, very, very <laughs> naked, are hell-bent on global chaos in a naked way. The art historian Sarah Mandy at the Museum of Ancient Art in Rome, played by Asia, who's mostly clothed in this film, uh, one of the few, is seemingly the Ah-hmm. only thing that stands in their way. Guys... This film has not been broadly... I was in the UK when this came out and I can say, like a lot of Argento fans, I was invested in this being good and I have to confess... It's not. The more that I watch it, the less I think it's good. I, I find it... It's kind of easy. It's kind of shooting fish in a barrel to say that this is not a great end to the trilogy. But, it's um, the Phantom
3: Menace of horror. Oh, my slash God, partners. it really
1: is. Argento
3: did, does a George Lucas, I think, How for this did you film. guys
1: go with the Mother of Tears?
3: Look,
2: it's so silly and so throwaway. It seems, yeah. Not notwithstanding that Dario Nicolodi, um, Daria is is back in the fold. In fact, the family Argento, the family that murders one another together, stays together. It seems, and yet Udo's back. Udo Udo's is back. Yeah. yeah, and there are little nods to all sorts of other parts of Argento's filmography, not least a uh, killer monkey. Um, the monkey's probably the best performer in the film, to be honest. Yeah, the monkeys. Got it down, Pat. Everyone else's line readings are pretty abysmal, uh, except Udo. Udo does Udo pretty yeah. well with the sh- severe case of the shakes, but the whole thing yeah. is so ludicrous, and and scenes of uh, coming uh, apocalyptic witchy uh, reign of terror are just ludicrous. As occasionally we see a couple of people embark engage in a bit of biffo in the street or a couple of 80s video clip escapees running amok in a railway station is <laughs> suggestive of of end times coming is it's just too preposterous for words um never mind the extremely unlikely um practices of the museum staff in just oh here's a priceless something should we wait till <laughs> someone comes along and
3: no let's just open it it's not even time to put gloves on i yeah, like that i know We just need to get in there quickly before michael who's picking up his kids or something gets back <laughs> (laughs) Um, It feels like Argento was asked to guest direct a really violent episode of Charmed. Like all the kind of the weaving of the spell magic and the mystical mother who comes and speaks to her daughter from the afterlife. It's, you know, as bad as this film is, at least it's bad in interesting ways. And again, the violence seems out of touch with a lot of the comic stuff in this film. Like, this is horrific violence. There's some really really extreme violence particularly when we come back to gender and sexuality many
1: many women film critics who have really championed uh Suspiria in particular um and Argento's work more broadly have had great issues with the violence against women in this film it is very strong and it is very ugly and it is very mean and difficult to watch
3: yeah it's kind of sickening actually yeah it's, it's too much it, it was the moment i sort of I jumped off the, the film. I just thought, okay, I'm going to get to the end. But given i just watched Suspiria a few hours earlier, to then see what I was seeing on, on the screen felt like almost a betrayal, which is in some ways is a silly thing to say, but it's such an extreme difference. And I think you make an interesting point in your book where you talk about trying to pin Argento as progressive or aggressive is ridiculous because his film covers the gamut of, of those things. And I guess it's, that's what makes part of um, this you know interesting. But it, I was also quite aware of, the fact that he cast his daughter in the role and the role that Niccolotti had played in earlier ones. And there's a great quote or an interesting quote where she talks about on this documentary I mentioned earlier about her father in this sort of very, very Freudian context where she says, my father has killed my mother several times, my sister once. He's never killed me, but he's had me raped a few times. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And it's like, <laughs> yes, it is, Asia. I think it's a little weird.
1: Look, it's, I mean, it's kind of easy to dig the boot in on this one i I love this uh today jason lee howden who directed uh deathgasm he just said straight out i refuse to acknowledge mother of tears he's like there's two (laughs) there's two films in this series and i don't think he's alone i think that's just a wonderful wonderful quote um he's not alone i think in that in that sense that, I mean, we have we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at a bigger splash that Luca Guadagnino, the Italian director, is now lined up to do a sequel, uh, sorry, a remake of the original Suspiria, which has been on the cards for years. At one point, David Gordon Green from the Pineapple Express was linked to this was project. Was with Natalie Portman? That was a bit of a storm in a teacup. Oh, okay. um, but, I mean, I think that this film also has um, spiritual sequels. Masks, a German film from 2011. Jason bognocchi's uh, another, f- is a really kind of spiritual... Kind of sequel. I mean, I think that this stuff is kind of out there now in the pop cultural domain. How do you guys feel about the Guadagnino as we sign off?
2: I think it's a tremendously bad idea. I think this film is unremakeable, and no matter the calibre of the filmmakers, just leave it well alone. It's, it's just they're on a hiding to nothing.
1: That's uh, very much been Argento's position. Too. Even
3: with Tilda Swinton, we should qualify it. Yeah, I, leave it alone.
0: Suspiria is available to view in Australia on iTunes and a number of Dario Argento's films are available locally through Umbrella Entertainment and Shock Entertainment. Suspiria will be screening as part of Alex's book launch on Saturday the 4th of June, presented by the Cinemaniacs Film Society in South Bank, and Alex and Cerise will be there also to talk about the film. This event has sold out. It sold out very quickly, but check out the Cinemaniacs Facebook page for information about standby tickets and pray to whatever deity or demon that you prefer (laughs) to get those tickets. Witch! One of the witches. Alex's book on Suspiria is part of the Devil's Advocates series. Uh, It's available online through Amazon and Book Depository or you can pick it up locally through Readings. It's distributed in Australia by Footprint Books. You have been listening to Alexandra, Helen Nicholas, Cerise Howard and Josh Nelson. They'll all be back next week along with myself, Thomas Cordwell, to take a look at a selection of new release films here on Plato's Cave. Good night. This has been a podcast oh. from 3 rr 102.7 FM in Melbourne